All right, would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? We're going to continue in our study, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, talking about the vanity of political hope. Now, I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open, and then I'm going to refer to the text as we go through it this morning rather than reading it at the beginning. But I do have a question for you. As we've been going through Ecclesiastes, are you enjoying this study in this book? I I hope so. It's one of my favorites, actually, in the Old Testament to read through. Um, But I know that for many people, when they read it for the first time, uh, they're kind of thinking, well, what is this book about? I mean, you come to the beginning and you hear Solomon, you know, writing about that everything is meaningless, you know, it's all, it's all vanity, it's all like chasing the wind, all of this, and you're going, uh, is this in the Bible, or why is this here, or what is, what is this about? And the key to Ecclesiastes is really understanding the perspective that is shared, and Solomon uses this phrase, under the sun, many different times. We'll see it again in our text this morning, too. And he is writing from the natural man's point of view that if this world is all there is, you know, if this is just all we've got and we're living under the sun, then life doesn't look so good sometimes. There are just problems we see and there are issues that keep coming up and there's suffering and there's pain and there's war and there's injustice and, you know, the list goes on and on. How do you make sense of that? And so Solomon... From that perspective, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived had the opportunity to try all these different things that people try to pursue to find meaning and purpose in life. And he tried money and sex and power. He tried education. He tried leisure and amusements and recreation. He tried work and projects and building things and stuff, you know. And he said it was all vanity. It was all like chasing the wind, or as Pastor Jason explained, that word vanity is like, it's like a breath, and it's gone. And there's no substance there. How do you make sense of that? Well, what Solomon does is throughout this book, he drops these seeds, these clues as to what the real meaning of life is about. And he'll tell us that God has set eternity in our hearts. Everybody, everybody's been made in the image of God. So whether a person believes in God or not, there is this sense deep within us that there has got to be something more than just this life. And he plants these seeds that say, do you know that even the ability to enjoy life and the things that we see is a gift from God? The ability to work and find satisfaction in your work. The ability to enjoy the beauty of the world around us and to do that reverently, that's a gift from God. And for the believer, everything that we do, everything that we see takes on new meaning. And when we enjoy something, whether it's, you know, a beautiful day like yesterday and we're out and we're enjoying fall colors or the apples of the season or whatever it might be, and we go, isn't God good? to give us these wonderful, beautiful things. And what we see in this book is Solomon is moving us to the point where we recognize that real joy and real meaning in life can only be found in a relationship with our creator. It is a gift from God and a gift to be enjoyed. 
So today, as we move into this text, we are going to look at three more problems in our world that Solomon saw and that we saw, and that uh, he's going to point us to Scripture's answer to each of them. So let's take a look at the first of these three topics that he brings up. He tells us, first of all, that there is unrighteousness in the halls of justice. There is unrighteousness in the halls of injustice. Uh, you can go to the first point, and then we are going to, I'm going to read for us the text, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. There is unrighteousness in the halls of justice. Solomon looked at his own country, and he probably looked at the nations surrounding Israel at that time. And what he saw was that justice isn't always fair. And true verdicts are not always given. And sometimes people come to the court seeking some kind of justice or retribution. And instead what they get is more intolerance or suffering. What he saw was wickedness and corruption. Instead of decisions being made objectively in all fairness, there were bribes. There were uh, twisting of the truth. In fact, that's what that word wickedness means. Uh, the word wickedness means a bending or twisting. And you can think of that in regard to the truth. And it, it doesn't seem right. And everything within you wants to scream out, that is not fair or that didn't happen that way. Do people feel that way in our world? Yes, they do. I mean, we frequently, frequently see on the news protests by Black Lives Matter. And whenever there's a situation or a case that comes up involving a black person today, you know, they go back to the string of injustices that have occurred in our nation's past. And they're angry about it. And they want to make sure that justice is done or that their people are treated fairly. And I understand and I, I get it, the things that they feel when you look back on how they have been treated in the past. But it doesn't mean that every situation today is being treated improperly. It's just a history that is there that makes them so angry. I think of Native Americans. In our nation's history, there have been 1,000 broken treaties as Native Americans were pushed from their lands or put onto reservations and treaties were violated as our country expanded. And that happened. There is history there. And so you can understand at times the frustration that they have felt and the questions that they have asked about justice. And in our day, it is really tough today between fake news that's being put out, even now we learn by other countries trying to interfere with our democracy, or whether it is uh, social media uh, if something comes up in the news today where a person's behavior or actions are questioned, they are tried in the court of social media long before it ever gets to the court or before we know all the facts of the case. 
And people make decisions and they're angry and they're upset. You know, there, there's a book written, uh, came out recently called Christians in an Age of Rage. And how do you deal with that? When things are posted on social media or maybe you have posted something and then you've gotten slammed for your opinion. And it seems so unfair like people aren't listening. Have you ever been involved in a court case where you felt that way? A number of years ago, my son was working up at Camp Shamina. This was Matt, and he was there in the adventures program on the rope course. And at Shamina, there would be schools that would come, bring their students out to use the rope course, and the teachers would get involved, and then the teachers would be trained, and they would help with some of the things that were going on. Well, there was a situation where on the uh, zip line, when the students came in, the teachers were to help the students when they came in to get on the platform and get the harness undone, and then they would uh, go on down, and you know, things were supposed to be good and fine. Well, what happened in one situation was one of the teachers, when the student came in, um, she grabbed the student, but she lost her balance, and the student started going back out toward the middle. And instead of letting go, she hung on, and she went out, and she fell, and she broke her leg. Well, workman's comp, was going to cover that, school district would cover that, and lost wages, but she chose to sue the camp for negligence in that regard, and it went to a jury uh, court. And Matt was one of those who was there, you know, and he's listening to all of this, and he was so frustrated because it felt like it wasn't about what happened, but it was about who could tell the best story. And so not only did the woman sue for emotional pain and distress and embarrassment as well as injuries and lost wages, but her husband also sued for loss of consortium, uh, you know, companionship, the downtime his wife was going to have and how that would affect him emotionally and, you know, physically, everything. And so it went to jury and the verdict was $4.7 million. And you're going, I mean... It, in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, it's right to be compensated for injury, lost wages, medical expenses, recovery, but how do you get a settlement of $4.7 million? And then the jury did determine, or the judge determined, that she was 40% responsible because she didn't follow the instructions, so then they reduced that down to $2.7 million, but still you're going, what is this? Um, when I was back in seminary, Dr. Kaiser would talk about in the Old Testament, there's this principle called lex talionis. It's the principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That doesn't mean if somebody knocks out your eye, you know, you line them up and you punch out their eye. It doesn't mean that. It means let the punishment fit the crime. Should be appropriate, not excessive, but appropriate for whatever is done. And so he would use the example for, you know, if you're driving and you're in a, fender bender where your fender gets wrecked by somebody, you know, well, you have a right to expect compensation to pay for the fender and get your, your car restored to what it was. You don't sue for your kid's college tuition, too. You know, you don't add that in there and hope that you just won the lottery and you can get all these other things covered. The principle of Old Testament, Lex Talionis, was let the punishment fit the crime or compensate someone fairly. And my son said he was so frustrated by that whole experience, it felt like I never want to get involved with the courts in any way. 
Chuck Sundahl said that he had an attorney friend who stopped doing court cases because of the corruption he was forced to wade through in the courtroom. He said it's no longer a question of whether one has a good case, it's more of a question of whether one has enough money to buy the right attorney, to pull the right strings, to play the right game. Now I don't want to, I, I don't want to speak negatively of anyone who's involved in our legal system because we have good people that are there. And we have Christians who are attorneys and who are judges and who work in that system and represent us. But there are times when there are cases that come up and we look at that and we scratch our head and we go, how is that fair? Solomon said, I've seen it too. And it makes me mad. It makes me mad. Does it bother you to see corruption and injustice in government and in the courts? How do you handle that? Well, Solomon said here that God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. We need to remember that there is a higher court than even the Supreme Court and that God will bring everything to justice. In Psalm 96, 13, he says, he will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in, tr in his truth. And just as Pastor Jason said last week, there will come a day when God will make all things right. And he's gonna restore the years the locusts have eaten. He's going to give back. He is going to treat people with justice and fairness for what has been done. And in the meantime, he says, trust me and strive for justice in our world. There will be a time for every activity and a time for every deed. Solomon sees another problem in our world, and it is the problem of the brevity of life, that man, like the animals, dies. Life is short, and sadly, there are times when it just doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, why is it that a wicked man might live to be 100 and a child might die in infancy? And we've seen that. This is the problem of death. Not only are we all going to die, but even death itself doesn't seem fair in the timing or in the length of a person's days. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I just want you to think about this. Because I would guess that all of us either have experienced this personally or we know someone else who has experienced it. All of us know someone, or we ourselves have lost a child, whether it was through a miscarriage, or through a birth defect, or through an accident. All of us know someone who has lost a child, and we know how painful that is. I think back for me, my first funeral at this church was for an infant who died. Pastor Jason's first funeral at this church was for an infant who died. And those are so hard, so hard. When, when we as parents have hopes and dreams for our child and we're looking forward with expectation and then to have all of that taken away, the grief is very, very painful. Some of us have lost family members in times of war. My wife lost a brother in Vietnam who was killed in the war. And that left a huge hole in their family. Some of us have lost 
a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, a husband or life. And sometimes those individuals have died when they were in the prime of their life. And it seemed like this is way too quickly. Or we think of the, the widow who is left or the child who is left. Now, without a father or a mother in our hearts break, we know that life is short. And isn't it interesting that God says that he tests man in this regard so that they may see that they are like the animals. Now that's an interesting phrase. And it is different for the believer than it is for the unbeliever when we look at that. We know from scripture that God has set the boundaries of a person's life. All the days that were ordained for us were written in his book before one of them came to be. We also know that God has set limits on the length of our life, whether that be 70 or 80 years or some live beyond that. God has done that so that we may know that we are mortal. We are not God. We are not gonna live in this life forever. But what happens after this life? He wants us to think about that. And when he says that we are like the animals or that he wants us to see, you know, Solomon writes here on verse 18, as for men, God tests them. So they may see they are like the animals, that man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless all go to the same place all come from the dust and to the dust all return and who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animals goes down into the earth so I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that's his lot for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? I mean, if this world again, this is all there is, and we just look at it, and you're here and you die and that's it, and there's nothing beyond this life, how does that make sense? But for the believer, we look at life differently. We know that life is short, but we know that there is a new world coming. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his victory over death, we have a future and a hope. And we know that even though we die, yet we will live and we will see him. And we will see those who have gone before us in the Lord. And so we have hope. But for the unbeliever, for the person who doesn't believe in God, I mean, they're thinking we really are like the animals. I mean, in fact, we are taught that we came from the animals. We just involved from other, you know, creatures and the kind of here are this higher point on the level of evolutionary scale and that's it though. And we're gonna die and we are just food for the worms. And who knows whether there's life after death. So you better enjoy it now because you're not gonna get another chance. How depressing is that? You know, I was recently at a conference where I um, was sitting next to a woman who works with another uh, retirement plan. I go to conferences now that deal with retirement plans. 
And it's interesting, this one group, it's called the Church Benefits Association, but it also includes like the Jewish groups. All right, so I'm sitting next to this woman who's from one of the Jewish groups, and during a break, you know, I, I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? She said, no, and I said, you know, way back when I was in college, I had a history professor who told me once that Jews don't believe in an afterlife. I said, is that true? And she said, well, well, that would depend upon which kind of group you're in. You know, the Jews have Orthodox and they have conservative and they have Reformed groups. Just like Christians have groups that are on the spectrum in terms of do we believe the Bible is the word of God and it's authoritative or do we believe that it's just the word of man and it's kind of a record of how they thought at that time and we think differently now. And you can be anywhere on that. So I asked her, you know, well, where are you? What do you believe? Is there a life after death? And she said, well, I'm in the group that doesn't believe that and I don't believe that. And I said, well, then what do you do? How do you deal with that? And she said, well, we just think that our purpose here is to uh, make life better for the next generation. So we do our part and we pass it on to the next generation and that's it. But you know, as she said that, there was this look of sadness on her face. And I, I have this feeling like maybe nobody had ever asked her that question before. And to hear those words come out of your mouth that this is all there is and when we die, we die and this is the best we can hope for was really kind of sad. Well, the break ended and we had to go to the next session and I'm hoping to talk to her again in the future because what I'm thinking of as I'm hearing this is I think about Job 19 verses 25 to 27. And Job is one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. And here's what Job said. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. And how my heart yearns within me. I mean, look at that. What did Job know? Job knew that he had a redeemer. And not only that, he knew that that redeemer was God. And he knew that his redeemer would one day stand upon the earth. And he also knew that after he had died, after this flesh had been destroyed, yet in his flesh, he himself would see God. He would see his Redeemer with his own eyes. And then he says, how my heart yearns within me. I long for that day. Did Job believe in an afterlife? Clearly he did. I mean, I, I don't know how you could say that any stronger or any more clearly. That could be a, a New Testament passage. But here in the Old Testament, Job was declaring his belief in a redeemer. And he longed for the day when he would see him face to face. Do you long for that day when you will see Jesus face to face? I think about that a lot. I think about what that is going to be like on that day to see Jesus face to face, this one whom we have worshiped and loved. The one who gave his life for us and redeemed us. The one who is with us every single day of our life and who cares for us. 
and what it's going to be like to bow at his feet and to say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did in my life. How my heart yearns within me. I think Job got it right. And I think that his statement is just such a powerful truth that for the believer, we look at life differently. Yes, this life is short. Yes, there are times when this life doesn't seem fair and it seems unjust in the way that the good die young or things happen to people in this life. But you know what? This isn't all there is. And as Randy Alcorn would say, we, we live for the line. We don't live for the dot. We don't live for today. We live for eternity. And we know that even though we will die, yet we will live. And we will be with Christ forever. And the third problem that Solomon saw that he wrote about in this passage was the problem of oppression. He said, the oppressed have no comforter. Listen to what he wrote in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He said, again I looked, and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he said, If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights are denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. He talked about a system of oppression that he saw and where the rights of the poor were denied. When we look at the scripture, we see that the Bible commands us to look out for those who are the most vulnerable in our society. And it uses the phrase, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. In Hebrew society back in those days, uh, that meant a lot. Because if you did not have a male family member who represented you in court or in the legal system, you were on the out. The widow who had lost her husband had no one to defend her. The orphan who had no father to speak for them was vulnerable to others in society and could be taken advantage of. And the alien who had come into the land had no rights no one to speak in their defense. And God called Israel to be different, to not be a nation like that, but to be a nation that would look out for those who were most vulnerable in their land. In Proverbs 31.8, the scripture says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and for the rights of all who are destitute. In Hebrews 13.3, the scripture says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you were suffering. You see, oppression can take different forms. Oppression can be taken advantage of people for economic means or for your own personal gain, but it can also refer to religious persecution. 
and suffering that occurs when people deny the rights of those who seek religious freedom. We see both happening in our world. Did you know that 74% of the world's population do not have religious freedom? They can't come as we do on a Sunday morning like this, where we come to worship, and we do this without fear. It's not like we need to gather in secret or that we need to have some kind of code or, you know, meet in a smaller setting in a home or meet out in a forest somewhere so somebody can't find us, hopefully. We come openly and freely to worship. But most of the world's population does not have that freedom. And the most persecuted group in the world are the Christians. In some countries, it is on the level of genocide. In North Korea, in Pakistan, in Somalia, in Libya, in Afghanistan, there are no rights for the believer. Even in countries like China and Vietnam and Central Asia and parts of Africa, the oppression is severe. Open Door Ministry tracks these things and reports on what they do know, but there's probably much more that they don't know or can't find the statistics on. But here are their reports for just the last year. There are 245 million Christians who experience a high level of persecution. That's only slightly smaller than the population of our country. And think of that, our brothers and sisters who are living under extreme persecution. 4,305 Christians have been killed for their faith this year so far. 1,847 churches and Christian buildings have been attacked burned, or bombed. 3,150 Christians have been detained without trial, like some of the pastors you've heard about in countries that are arrested, thrown in prison, no trial, no recourse, no justice. And these are just statistics that they know how many more are out there that they don't know about or hear about that are suffering as well. And Hebrews 13 says, pray for them. Remember them as though you were a fellow prisoner. Speak up for them that justice may be done. It was great this past week when President Trump and the American delegation brought this to the attention of the UN and said something has to be done regarding this issue of religious freedom. But there is another very big problem in our world, and that's the problem of slavery. Slavery didn't end in the past. Slavery didn't end when we fought a war over that in our country, but there is slavery that is going on today, and again, it's very hard to get accurate numbers. The Global Slavery Index estimates that there are 40 million people who are slaves in our world today. They put them in this, these categories. Of forced labor, including child labor, 16 million. Of forced marriage, 15 million. Of forced sexual slavery, 5 million. Of forced labor by state authorities, 4 million, where people are taken by the state, put into work camps. No freedom, no rights, no justice, forced to work until they die. You look at what's happening in our world, and it breaks 
our heart. When the oppressed look to government for relief, the very place that God has given us, that government should be for the good of people, it is established. They are to be public servants for our good. And what people find is there is no comforter there. There's no relief. And I think about that with our nation. As divided as our government is right now, and as contentious as things are going to get over this whole question of impeachment or what was said, what was done, do you realize how blessed we are that we can even talk about it? Do you realize how blessed we are that we can come and worship in freedom, that we can go to a poll, that we can have elections, we can vote for those who represent us, we can write to those who represent us, we can share our opinions and our views, and we need to do that because most of the world doesn't have that freedom. And Solomon writes here, and I agree, this is really depressing what he says here. He goes, you know, if this is all there is, if our world is just filled with injustice and oppression and life is horrible from the day you're born, well, better to be dead. At least the people who are dead have no more suffering. But you know what? Even better still are those who were never born at all because they didn't have to go through all of this. That's a pretty depressed view, isn't it? But thank God this world is not all that there is. There is hope because of Christ, and oh, how we need that. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian historian, estimated that between 1917 and 1959, a total of 66 million people died in the former Soviet Union at the hands of their own government under Lenin and Stalin. During World War II, Hitler ordered the death of six million Jews. 52 million people died worldwide during World War II to end that injustice and the other injustices that were going on. And millions more have died through the years and through the centuries in religious wars and persecution. How do we respond to all of that? How do we respond to such suffering and evil? Well, there were two famous thinkers who gave two very different answers to that question. In 1963, Martin Luther King wrote his letters from a Birmingham jail. And he said that if there were no higher divine law that defined what justice is, there would be no way to tell if anything was unjust or not. If God had not given us this book to know truth, to know righteousness and justice, then we'd all be going just on our own opinions or thoughts. But God has declared what is right and just, and so we strive for it. On the other hand, the German philosopher and atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche, wrote this. When he heard that there had been a volcanic eruption in Java that destroyed the island, and the tsunamis, tsunamis that followed had wiped out 200,000 people, he wrote this to a friend. He said, 200,000 people wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent. How magnificent. You know, he was just being consistent with what he believed. There's no God. There's no basis for morality. All our decisions about right and wrong are just arbitrary. So if people die, let them die. 
I mean, what would he say to those who are victims of hurricanes that have occurred in Puerto Rico or Texaco or the Carolinas? He, he wouldn't lift a finger to help them at all. He'd say, let them die. And like Ebenezer Scrooge say, and reduce the surplus population. I don't want to live in a world like that. And I don't know how people can live in a world like that without hope. What they need is to hear the good news of the gospel and to know the truth that Jesus Christ has changed all of that. Because for the Christ follower, we look at life differently and we see that every person has dignity and worth because we are made in the image of God. And we will not be silent when it comes to injustice and oppression. And we will work to rescue those who are caught in its web. And we understand that ultimately, government is not the answer. Government's not going to solve all the problems in our world. Jesus Christ is the answer. And the answer is to be found in the church and in a relationship with him. I want to share a closing story to illustrate. Many of you know who Natalie Grant is. She's a Christian recording artist. And she had the opportunity with her husband to go to India where she wanted to learn more firsthand about what is happening in terms of child slavery and sexual slavery to do her part to help bring justice and freedom. She went to Mumbai or Bombay, India with a group called Shared Hope. And what she saw there broke her heart. She was taken to a part of the city that would be like a red light district, if you will, and her guides were leading her through there. And as she's walking along, she looked up, and there in a second-story window was a young girl, maybe seven, dark brown eyes looking out from the window, and a hand reaching out from what was a caged window. And it looked like the kind of cage that we might keep a pet in a kennel. And she saw that. And her guide said to her that this is where they keep the new girls. And they only let them out to favor their clients. And Natalie said, I had all I could do to keep from throwing up. And I, she started sobbing and crying over what she had seen. And then she said later that day we went to the village called the Village of Hope where these rescued children have been brought into freedom. And she saw the faces of children with joy where they now had hope, they had freedom, and she said to hear those children pray, it, ju it just moved her heart. And to see the difference that this ministry was making in rescuing children from a horrible abusive situation. She said, I never want to forget that. And I can never go back to, you know, the work that I do or singing. I want to inspire people to work for social justice, to be instruments of God's peace and justice in the world. Because when we are open, willing to let God use us in that way, however it may be, we bring light 
to some of the darkest places in our world. I was thinking about that, and I, I want to end today by saying thank you to those of you that are involved in ministries that work with the least of these in our world. I listed and I put up some of the ministries that our church is connected with. The Dwelling Place, that works to help victims of domestic abuse. Urban Homeworks, to address the situation of the poor who need affordable housing. Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, to rescue those that are caught in addiction and to bring them to faith in Christ. Feed My Starving Children, to help with the needs of the hungry. Missionary Evangelism to Corrections, to help those that are caught in the correctional system to turn their life around because of Christ. Children's Shelter of Cebu that works with orphans in the Philippines. Child Sponsorship, many of you do that through Compassion or World Vision or Global Fingerprints that is the Evangelical Free Church ministry in that area. Many of you with Samaritan's Purse are involved with Operation Christmas Child to bring hope or encouragement to a child in another part of the world. Or you donate food and give to the local food shelf to help those in our community. I want to thank you for what you're doing and if you are not involved in that, to look for one of those ministries or ways that you can. Because whatever we do for the least of these in our world, Jesus says, you do for me. And you help to bring hope to our world. Let's pray. Father, I know that today's topic is not an easy one to hear. It breaks our heart to see the suffering that there is in our world. And we are so incredibly grateful for what you have done. That this world will not continue as it is forever. But because of the light that you have brought into our world, there is hope and there is a future. And so, Father, would you help us to be your instruments in this place, in this community, and in the nations where we have opportunity to serve, to bring the hope of the gospel, to bring the light of Christ, to make a difference, to be a voice for the oppressed, and to rescue those who are suffering, that they might come into our relationship with you too. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.